Well, my thanks to Mary and to Robert for those warm words of introduction. Um, I should start by thanking Robert and also my head of department, David Cohen, uh, for all their generous support over the years. Um, I'd also like to thank my acting head of department, Neil Mitchell, for his thoughtfulness this year. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you for coming. There are many familiar faces here from various stages and parts of my life, which is both very heartwarming and uh, somewhat intimidating. I hope I can say something to hold the interest of such a mixed audience, including the more general UCL audience gathered here today. I intend to structure what I say in three main parts. First, to say a bit about the journey by which I reached UCL, which, as Robert has said, wasn't wholly conventional in academic terms. Uh, just to get one key fact in early, I arrived here nearly 17 years ago on a one-year fixed-term research contract. So I certainly never expected to find myself in such a position today. Second, I'll say something about the research I've done since being here. And then third, in line with the title, I'll give some reflections on relationships between the academic study of politics, the everyday practice of politics, and the wider world. But the whole talk should allow for such reflections, given the nature of both my journey and my research, <coughs> while allowing me to pay tribute to some of those who've helped me along the way, including many who are here this evening. So I arrived at UCL in what's now the Department of Political Science with at least two qualifications, arguably three, that could be considered non-standard. The first was a degree not in politics, nor another closely related discipline, but in mathematics, gained from the LSE. Studying mathematics showed a certain lack of imagination. Um, as my mother um, had pursued a degree in maths and physics at Edinburgh in the late 1930s. No mean feat for a woman in those days. She's a notable absence here today, sadly, and would have been very proud. She instilled an enthusiasm in me for maths and mathematical puzzles, which I developed under supervision of another extraordinary and now sadly departed woman, Professor Haya Friedman, my tutor at the LSE. One of the key themes of this talk is research impact. Now, thankfully, in my view, fashionable, particularly following the reform of the REF to the uninitiated, that's the research excellence framework by which universities are judged. One of my earliest claims to be a proponent of impact is a conversation I remember having with Haya Friedman, who wanted me to stay on and do a PhD. I was skeptical and pressed her to give me examples of real-world application of the kinds of things I was studying. Admittedly, I'd made this difficult by eschewing practical things like computer science and statistics in favor of algebra and mathematical logic. But she struggled with the question, which reinforced my view that I needed to go and do something else. I wanted to get away from purely abstract ideas on paper into a job of obvious relevance to wider society. But the late 1980s was a difficult time to hit the job market, even with a first-class maths degree. After sending off dozens of applications and not getting a single interview, I was tempted back. Haya recommended me to one of her former star students, Norman Fenton, who's over here, um, who'd established his own research centre at the then Southbank Polytechnic, where I started as a research assistant. Norman's work was actually all about application, using measurement theory to encourage better software design and testing importantly emphasizing what's measurable and what's not. My second unusual qualification is perhaps even more so. One of the areas I tried to get into on leaving university was housing. As a student, I've been active in a housing co-op. While this didn't lead to housing work, it did lead to something else. 
I joined a self-build scheme whereby a group of co-op tenants took over a plot of land and collectively built 16 houses from the ground up. This was tough but rewarding. It taught me a lot about teamwork in particular. But the most important insight was that any large task, however daunting, is just a series of small tasks aggregated together. Getting from a flat piece of land to a three-storey house might seem impossible, but building a wall, leaving spaces for windows and doors, then adding those windows and doors. Laying, um, laying floor joists and then floorboards, roof joists, then battens, then tiles, is at each stage quite straightforward. This gave me a fearlessness of large tasks, which has sometimes perhaps bordered on reckless. <laughs> and of course it also means I'm now pretty good at DIY. The third bit of background that's more obviously relevant, or perhaps less unusual, is the time I spent working in politics before arriving at UCL. After four years at Southbank, I got a job in Parliament as a researcher to Claire Short MP, who I'm glad to say is here. Um, she was then a member of Labour's Shadow Cabinet. Claire was another inspirational figure. I supported her in two frontbench roles as Shadow Secretary of State for Transport and Shadow Minister for Women. In both, she was quite unusual among front-bench politicians in wanting to work closely with academics, a sign both of her fierce intelligence and her openness to ideas. In the women's brief, she asked Sylvia Walby, then of Bristol University, to organise a series of private seminars with academics on key issues in gender equality. This was a fine example of politics and academia working hand in hand, allowing new research ideas to feed straight into policy, it also had other happy outcomes. It introduced me to a network of impressive academic women, including Johnny Lovendusky, who's since been a key mentor, collaborator, and friend. And through a slightly more circuitous route, it resulted in my, me meeting my partner, Philip Carter. After four years with Claire, I got a job at Labour Party head office as women's officer a year before the 1997 election. Labour had just lost its court case over the legality of all women shortlists, but this affected just one seat. And the party nonetheless increased its number of MPs in 1997 from 37 to 101. But there were major questions about what to do next, as I'll come on to. It was from here that I arrived at UCL in 1998. It was six years since I'd last been in academia and in a completely different discipline. I applied for a one-year research position at the Constitution Unit to explore the options for House of Lords reform. This was a key policy commitment of the newly elected Labour government, which promised to reform the chamber in two stages. First, removing the hereditary peers, and then moving to a more democratic and representative alternative. The first stage was successfully legislated for in 1999, and the second referred to a Royal Commission. Robert Hazel was, as ever, ahead of the game. With Ben Said, who's here somewhere, um, he wrote a grant proposal for the Leverhulme Trust to research what international experience suggested about the long-term options for the Lords. Robert had also entered UCL from outside academia as a former lawyer and civil servant, and set up the Constitution Unit in 1995 with the core purpose of producing research of relevance to policymakers. Hence the unit was all about impact, before that term had really yet been coined as was the original uh, UCL School of Public Policy, within which it sat. I arrived as no expert in bicameralism, that's two chamber parliaments, or in comparative research. 
but I brought a good knowledge of the British Parliament, British politics and the research process, and plentiful enthusiasm. One of my first foolhardy suggestions was that we should aim higher than simply writing a report as originally planned, and instead publish a book, and the proposal I drafted for Oxford University Press was accepted. Here I was clearly applying the house building principle. I'd never written a book before, of course, but what was a book but a series of chapters? I also hadn't yet realized Robert's weakness for pursuing ambitious research projects with very challenging timetables. The project involved researching seven countries in detail. Canada seemed sufficiently well documented to research from home, but for the other six countries, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Ireland, and Australia, I not only read what literature existed, but wrote to country experts and organized study trips to conduct interviews and gather primary data. Of course, this was all within the original project timescale of a year, slightly extended by some consultancy money from the Royal Commission. I sent OUP the manuscript 15 months after the project began, and the book, my first monograph, appeared just before the Royal Commission's report in March 2000. Looking back, it seems about as mad as building a house from the foundations up, but somehow by applying the same principle, it seemed to work. My second Constitution Unit project addressed a question I'd brought with me, returning to women in politics. Following the court ruling on all women shortlist, the Labour Party was caught in a dilemma. The ruling held that all women shortlist contradicted the principle of non-discrimination in the Sex Discrimination Act. This was disputed, but since the Act was a piece of UK legislation and Labour was now in government, the obvious way out was to change the law, to explicitly make political quotas legal. Yet some thought this could bring the UK into conflict with EU anti-discrimination legislation, potentially landing us in the European Court of Justice. Labour politicians already queasy about all women shortlists, including Tony Blair, were edgy. But the puzzle I sought to research was how, when political quotas operated in various other EU countries, EU law could possibly be a barrier. I won a grant from the Nuffield Foundation to explore this question. Here I owe another tribute to the now director of the Nuffield Foundation, Sharon Witherspoon, who's done so much to support and encourage my research ever since. This was only a small project comprising desk research into anti-discrimination law and interviews with key legal figures. I was struck by how the law, while superficially similar for being based on logical reasoning, was quite unlike mathematics, relying heavily on interpretation. An interpretation, at least in the Strasbourg court, depends greatly on politics. So because Strasbourg hadn't been asked to consider the legality of political quotas before, my question had no definite answer. But faced with a UK case, it would consider the ramifications for other political systems and be unlikely to disrupt the quotas already happily operating elsewhere. The report including these conclusions, published in 2000, had a catalytic effect strengthening the arguments of ministers supporting legal change and weakening those of their opponents. Immediately after the general election of 2001, Labour passed the Sex Discrimination Election Candidates Act, making political quotas legal. This was a positive story about academic research impact, but the translation from research results to implementation wasn't straightforward. It wasn't just a matter of grateful policymakers picking up and applying a clear set of conclusions. The conclusions themselves contained uncertainty, while the policymakers were split. As future experiences showed, 
This is often the case. After the 2001 election, I returned for two years to the world of politics on secondment as a full-time researcher to Robin Cook, who'd just been made leader of the House of Commons. One of the key issues on his agenda was Lord's reform, making me an obvious fit. He had just two other policy staff, Greg Power and Anthony Zakharevsky, both of them due to be here, and a Commons clerk to advise on procedural matters. Having travelled the world to explore what worked and didn't in bicameral systems, this was a serious opportunity for research impact. But even more than previously, things were far from uncomplicated. I certainly didn't naively assume that my proposals would be taken up. The splits in the Labour Party on Lords reform were clear. The Royal Commission had proposed a largely appointed House, a principle that appeared in Labour's 2001 manifesto. Robin, meanwhile, favoured election to the Lords. And the conclusions of my book suggested this was necessary. Based partly on the low public standing of the appointed Canadian Senate and partly on the widely cited treatment of bicameral systems by the great comparativist Arendt Leithart, I concluded only a largely or wholly elected chamber would have sufficient legitimacy to hold the government more effectively to account. But of course, while there was general consensus that the Lords needed reform, there was absolutely no agreement that it should be strengthened. The policy officially belonged to the Lord Chancellor, Derry Irvine, who opposed large-scale election to the Lords. So I found myself at the centre of a battle of ideas, a battle of wills, and a battle of political organisation between two of the biggest beasts in the Labour Party. I needn't go into detail because this is entertainingly documented in what's sadly now a posthumous account in Robin's own book. Needless to say, my evidence-based case, though the evidence turns out to be more complicated than I initially thought, as I'll come on to, didn't win. Neither did the man widely reputed to be one of the cleverest in Parliament, a reputation which, having worked for him, seemed wholly deserved. And we were not lone voices. The Public Administration Committee, chaired by the equally formidable Tony Wright, and with Robert as its specialist advisor, produced a strong report <coughs> arguing for a largely elected chamber. Anthony's analysis of public responses to the government's consultation paper found virtually no support for its position of a largely appointed house. But ultimately, all these efforts achieved was the abandonment of the government's proposals with nothing to put in their place. Famously, when the Commons voted on options for Lords reform in 2003, it rejected them all, elected, appointed, the lot. The winners were those, including the party whips, who feared that any change to the status quo would inject a dangerous degree of legitimacy to the Lords. <coughs> My spell in government ended abruptly when Robin resigned over the Iraq war. Of course, another fascinating episode to watch from the inside. So I returned to UCL in mid-2003. Supported by the then head of department, Helen Margetts, I began teaching for the first time. But I also brought back with me two new research ideas on Parliament, one on the Lords and one on the Commons. First, however, I won funding from Leverhulme to write my second monograph on the recent history of organisational reform in the Labour Party. By this time, I'd become quite keen on challenging orthodoxies, both political and academic. In this respect, the Labour book was an open goal. There was an almost universal perception that Tony Blair had created something called New Labour, not just in policy terms, but also organisation. Major changes occurred in the mid-1990s, including through candidate selection, the new National Policy Forum, and women's quotas. 
Well, once you scratched the surface, things weren't necessarily as they seemed. I planned to write a book on organisational change since Blair took over in 1994, but it proved impossible not to trace most reforms back to the early 80s. In other words, very little implemented by Blair was actually inspired by Blair, or even his wing of the party. Most of the key ideas originated on the Labour left, while the key organisational changes actually occurred under his predecessors, Neil Kinnock <coughs> and John Smith. Blair's main contribution was in branding these changes as new, and thus associating them with himself. Hence, one of my closing chapters was entitled Change and the Illusion of Change, pointing out that it's important to separate political myth, as woven in a comment like this from Arch Blairite Stephen Byers, from reality. Returning to the two parliamentary research ideas, one on the Commons and one on the Lords. On the first of these, I've by now achieved a reputation of some, as something of a Lords expert, while knowing very little about the place. I'd studied other second chambers to inform Lords reform, but never actually studied the Lords. Meanwhile, it was getting increasingly interesting. Many, probably including Labour ministers, had assumed removing hundreds of Conservative hereditary peers would make life easier for a Labour government. The Guardian's Hugo Young claimed that he calls it reform, but all Blair wants is an impotent second chamber. While Peter Hitchens, ever understated, asked whether Lord's reform signalled the road to the British right. <laughs> Conservative politicians routinely said similar things. But actually, the post-1999 Lords was inflicting increasing number of numbers of defeats on Blair's government, peaking at 88 in the 2002-03 session. So while the Lords had for years been a relatively unexplored backwater, it seemed increasingly worthy of study. This sparked one of my biggest areas of research into the Chamber's behaviour, membership and policy impact post-1999 funded by two three-year ESRC research grants, and more recently by kind support from donors to the Constitution Unit. We've used a variety of research methods, including analysis of peers' voting behavior in a database that now contains well over a million records, tracking policy decisions using Hansard and other sources, surveys of peers, surveys of MPs, surveys of the public, elite interviews, and media content analysis. This has produced plenty of counterintuitive results, published in various journal articles and drawn together in my third book of 2013. Central among them is the conclusion that the great comparativist Arendt Leipart was wrong. Turns out it is possible for a second chamber to gain legitimacy without being elected. Of course, this also has the unfortunate consequence that some of the conclusions in my own first book were wrong. As shown by both their behaviour and their attitudes, peers became increasingly more confident to challenge government after the 1999 reform. The most indefensible members of the chamber were gone, and it had become far more party balanced. Indeed, as the Liberal Democrats like pointing out, its party balance more closely mirrored general election vote shares than did the Commons, giving them little hesitation in joining with the Conservatives to defeat Blair's government on matters like civil liberties. Public opinion surveys and media content analysis showed that those outside the chamber were quite happy with this situation, despite the Lord's unelected status. A second orthodoxy was that defeats in the Lords didn't really matter. After all, they could readily be overturned in the Commons. 
But tracking the ultimate outcome of hundreds of Lord's defeats, begun with Maria Shara and continued later with Megan Benton, showed that many went on to be accepted and to influence policy. This sowed the seeds for my latest large branch of research, which I'll turn to shortly, on the little-noticed <coughs> policy influence of Parliament. Our Lord's research shed light on broader new political dynamics in British politics, not just in terms of the increased power of the Lords, which is central, but the groups within it. We showed the extent to which the Lib Dems had become pivotal. Had they voted differently, over 90% of Lords' defeats under Labour would have been averted. Their collaboration with the Conservatives began in the Lords years before coalition. We also explored the growing role of independent crossbenchers, who in their, until then had been subject to virtually no study, but now have around 180 seats in Parliament and have effectively held the balance of power since 2010. We explored both their political attitudes and voting behaviour, shattering some further myths. Pre-1999, most crossbenchers were hereditary, but reform brought in a new breed of crossbencher to the fore. Yet assumptions remained stubborn on the Labour side that this group were somehow Tories in disguise. A memorable moment was during an interview with a very senior Labour figure in the Lords who challenged me to find him a single example of a division where more crossbenchers had voted with the government than against it. I went back to my office, checked my database, and half an hour later sent him a list of over 300 such examples. This person really should have known better, but the story illustrates again the power of political myths and the necessity of hard evidence to break them down. Our Lord's research has been impactful in various ways. It's widely cited, not just academically, but in Parliament and the media. It's allowed me to continue feeding into debates about reform and its consequences. But here my message has got more complex. The Lords is distinctly less absurd than it used to be, and quite different to before 1999. Meanwhile, as my first book emphasised, even second chambers that are elected are often subject to criticism and pressure for reform. They exist to challenge elected first chambers, which makes them fundamentally controversial. So the Lords isn't alone, and in the international stakes it actually fares not too badly. Plus, once you consider the historical evidence, of which the Robin and Derry spat was just one recent example, and the collapse of Nick Clegg's 2012 bill another, large-scale Lord's reform is extraordinarily hard. Indeed, after 100-plus years of debate, it's never happened. Instead, the Chamber's been improved through relatively small gradual steps, like that in 1999. In the battle to improve the Lords, I've thus become a pragmatic incrementalist. Some of you will have seen my latest pleas in a co-authored report last month with my researcher Tom Semlian for the next step to be regulation of prime ministerial appointments. The other idea I returned to UCL with from the leader of the Commons concerned that chamber. There was much frustration among MPs about the extent of the government's grip and the grip of the whips more generally over Commons governance, including setting the parliamentary agenda and selecting members of committees. On the former, there was significant in interest in establishing some kind of business committee, like those existing in many overseas parliaments, to take over timetabling from the whips. I sought to explore these issues in another Nuffield-funded project supported by Akash Pown. This again took a comparative approach, looking at what, if any, procedures from other parliaments might usefully be imported. Our report, 
again challenged orthodoxies, showing that on close inspection, business committees in other parliaments did little to broaden access to the agenda, being invariably dominated by whips. This illustrates a well-known point in legislative studies and political study more broadly, that rules and structures can't be taken at face value. Culture and political behaviour are key. Rather than supporting a business committee like those elsewhere, we hence proposed a unique model of a backbench business committee with, responsible, with responsibility for timetabling a new form of non-government business, entirely controlled by backbenchers. I also com felt compelled to include a section in our report entitled Reasons to be Cheerful, listing various things Westminster did better than its comparators. This celebrated, for example, the genuine independence of our speaker and the fact that questions, speaking time and private members' bills are shared out fairly between backbenchers rather than controlled by party whips. Given how people love to lament Westminster, this was deliberately countercultural. Such a report might normally be expected to fall on deaf ears. Getting recommendations adopted that challenged the powers that be, i.e. the whips, was a lot to ask. But then the MPs' expenses crisis happened, and political leaders suddenly wanted to look like they were doing something. I sent the report again to key players, including John Burkow, about to be elected Speaker. Tony Wright, who'd served on the Project Advisory Committee, wrote to Prime Minister Gordon Brown about it. And to both of our astonishment, Brown responded by establishing a House of Commons Reform Committee with Tony in the chair. I became its specialist advisor, and it went on to recommend establishment of a backbench business committee alongside election of select committee members and chairs. Even with the window of opportunity created by the expenses crisis, achieving agreement wasn't easy. Behind the scenes, committee members needed serious convincing not to just go for the standard business committee model. And despite the Backbench Business Committee looking in some respects more modest, the whips fought it all the way. Nonetheless, it was successfully brought into effect in 2010. The last area of my research I'll mention remains ongoing on the policy impact of the Westminster Parliament. This has had various strands, again largely funded by the Nuffield Foundation. One of these was delivered in partnership with the parliamentary authorities themselves. In 2010, Megan Benton and I worked with Paul Evans in the House of Commons Committee Office to design a major study of the policy impact of the select committees. With a team of committee staff as volunteers, we analysed seven committees over 13 years and the nearly 700 reports that they produced and conducted over 50 interviews. Before this, the committees were well respected, but there was scepticism about their actual policy effect. One popular textbook noted that ministers can and generally do ignore select committees, but no evidence was offered and our findings suggested otherwise. By tracking implementation of committee recommendations, we found that almost half went on to be accepted by government. More importantly, committees have a range of other effects, in particular the deterrent effect of their evidence sessions, which expose government policymaking to public scrutiny. Government insiders we spoke to, such as this former senior minister, spoke frequently of such dynamics. The ongoing part of this research stream concerns the legislative process, where a team including Megan, Daniel Gover, and Christina Volta traced over 4,000 amendments to 12 bills in both chambers of parliament and conducted over 100 interviews. <coughs> this demonstrates very similar patterns to the select committee research. 
Careful tracking uncovers visible influence through government taking up proposals in non-government amendments. But invisible influence through behind-the-scenes negotiation and Parliament's deterrent effect is probably more important. While the public record and quantifiable data like amendments and committee recommendations tell half the story, the full picture can only ever be seen through more qualitative analysis, including off-the-record interviews with those closely concerned. Our conclusions overall challenge the general orthodoxy that the Westminster Parliament's weak in policy terms. As outlined in my UCL lunchtime lecture last October, both journalists and politicians often talk down the power of Westminster. Hence Simon Jenkins, for example, has referred to the Commons as God's gift to dictatorship. And William Hague, when in opposition, complained that we had a parliament that bows and scrapes to ministers. But talking to people from the other side of the fence tells a very different story. Civil servants told us that those inside government are constantly guided by what parliament will accept. One Labour MP, who moved from the back benches to a central role in number 10, confessed to amazement at how much attention was given to backbench views. The fruits of this research remain impressed with several journal articles and a book pending, but I hope they'll shift common perceptions at least a bit. That long tour around my research allows me, I hope, in the last part of this lecture to reflect on wider questions about the relationship between political science research, political practitioners, and the real world. The Constitution Unit, where I've been fortunate enough to be for 17 years, is renowned for its research impact and close association with policymakers. As I've said, this was its original raison d'etre, and in some respects, the system for assessing academic merit has gradually caught up with us, though at the same time, we've also become more conventionally academic. Now that impact is so prized in academia, my experiences at the unit are perhaps interesting to those who want to know how to get their research listened to, and even put into effect. As should perhaps be clear from what I've already said, there are some simple lessons, but also a good deal of complexity. The first simple lesson is that if you want to be listened to by policymakers, you need to be driven by research questions they care about. As I've discussed, some of my research sought explicitly to respond to questions policymakers were asking. Other elements of the unit's work have tried to second guess what they'll be asking in future. So we produced a book on the prospects for Scottish independence in 2002. Robert's book on the English question, including my chapter with Guy Lodge on English votes on English laws, followed in 2006. Both of these suddenly became essential reading in the context of the Scottish independence referendum last year. So being responsive to policymakers doesn't necessarily mean being driven by them. Academics can also usefully think through where the policy debate's likely to travel and prepare the ground. But the key lesson is that impact isn't something to be bolted on after the event, having pursued questions of purely academic interest. The concerns of the world beyond academia need consideration from the start. It's no coincidence that both Robert and I initially came from the policy world, so we're quite well attuned to what policymakers are interested in, how they work, and how to reach them. But even for us, impact is no accident. We have to work for it. That means actively engaging with policymakers, assessing the direction of their thinking and what they'll find useful. It means explicitly including them as advisors on projects, getting their feedback on research plans and inviting their comments on outputs in draft. Sometimes, as I did with the Wright Committee, achieving impact demands a degree of active campaigning to support the outcomes you recommend in your research. At a minimum, 
Impact requires careful dissemination through publishing in non-academic as well as academic outlets, holding launch events by and with and by with and for policymakers, and maintaining strong media contacts. The unit also has a lively website, newsletter, blog, and Twitter feed. Another common feature of our research is it's often not that methodologically complex. I've conducted plenty of large-scale data collection. I've mentioned my million-record database on Lord's voting, the thousands of legislative amendments, the hundreds of interviews. This is all underpinned by significant computing power and requires academic rigor, absolutely, but normally not fancy statistics. <coughs> the key thing is to design the methods to fit the question, while the question, in some sense, responds to the interests of the real world. In contrast to this, there's been a flurry of recent questioning in British academia about the so-called relevance of political science study. This was sparked partly by a chapter in a popular textbook in 2010 by Guy Peters, John Pierre, and, Gary, and Jerry Stoker, saying something similar to what I just did, in that political scientists should be asking questions to which others outside the profession want to know the answer. Replying subsequently, Akash Pound, formerly of the unit and now the Institute for Government, pithily suggested that the most noteworthy aspect of this proposition is that it needs to be made at all. Stoker and colleagues now have a book forthcoming, and he's kindly shown me the proofs. Their introduction speaks of a substantial and growing gap between theory and practice, commenting that the top American journals all appear to prize methodological advance above substantive contribution to the understanding of politics. Matthew Flinders, now chair of the Political Studies Association, has called this the strange depoliticization of political science. As some here will know, such complaints are nothing new. In the US, they've been raging for decades. The redoubtable Bernard Crick wrote disapprovingly of the American science of politics <coughs> way back in 1959. 1984 saw a book entitled The Tragedy of Political Science. More recently, Ian Shapiro has warned of the dangers of methods-driven rather than question-driven research. And Lawrence Mead of NYU recently wrote of the dangers of scholasticism in political science, including excessive specialization, methodologism, and inward focus on academic literature. He suggested that research questions are getting smaller and scholars are focusing more on themselves, less on the real world. In the branch of the discipline where I often work, legislative studies, there's plenty of good research done. But these American political science trends are also sometimes painfully visible. As I tell my students, legislatures are sources of a fantastic amount of data on voting, speaking, amendments, and so on. Particularly in comparative study, which is increasingly necessary to publish in the top journals, it's possible to generate huge data sets of many thousands of items, creating a playground for highly sophisticated statistics. But there's also a risk of losing sight of what, if anything, the data actually means. For example, I've seen one depressing, one depressing paper crunching data on thousands of private members' bills across numerous legislatures, completely overlooking the huge differences in how these bills are even defined country by country. Another trend in legislative studies is formal modelling, which reduces processes to abstract mathematical constructs, often based on such simplifying assumptions that they bear little resemblance to, to any real-world legislature. I hope it's clear from my background that I'm not afraid of numbers, and I'm not afraid of algebra. Indeed, I can enjoy these things. 
But having escaped mathematics because of my perception that it lacked real-world relevance, some political science papers seem to have been written by frustrated mathematicians. <laughs> Indeed, some are written by actual mathematicians. I also recently read a journal article on early day motions in the Commons constructed using highly advanced methods by some academics from a maths department. This had presumably so impressed or simply so baffled referees that they recommended publication, though the authors plainly understood little to nothing about the processes concerned. I should emphasize that I'm all in favor of pluralism and have plentiful respect both for political theorists and those who conduct high quality research using sophisticated methods. But when the methodology comes first and researchers lose sight of the real world importance of the question they're asking, or the real world rather than the statistical significance of their results, that's when it gets problematic. Stoker and colleagues rightly point out that the things that are easiest to measure may actually be the least relevant for solving problems. That echoes what I learned in my very first job with Norman years ago. Political science that's too inward looking won't be taken seriously and may even endanger itself as illustrated by serious recent attempts in the US to withdraw public funding from the discipline. In the UK, there are reasons to be more optimistic, but signs of disconnect between political science and real world perceptions do nonetheless exist. I was struck by one of the referee's comments when we submitted a recent paper on Parliament's legislative influence to a leading UK journal. While our setup suggested there was a common perception of Westminster as non-influential, this referee complained that the paper had a whiff of the straw man about it because it was expounding an argument that legislative studies scholars have been making for a very long time. My responses to this were twofold. First, <coughs> Simon Jenkins and William Hague and numerous others who lament Westminster's powerlessness are clearly made of flesh and blood, not straw, and are very influential on public perceptions. Second, while specialist scholars have indeed been making these arguments for years, we sought to underpin them with empirical evidence, because those arguments clearly haven't been getting through, I'd suggest even to the wider academic community, let alone the world beyond. I've complained about some academics, but it's important to emphasize that communication problems with policymakers don't all lie on one side. Those writing on evidence-based policymaking emphasize how it's a part far from perfect process. Even civil servants may cherry-pick evidence sometimes to suit their own purposes. But elected politicians, who face very different pressures to academics and have different incentives and goals, are particularly likely to do so. Politicians have ideological commitments and face electoral pressures. They have battles to win in their own parties and incentives to bash the other side. Hence, writing in the BMJ about health policy, Nick Black notes that the use of research evidence depends on the degree of consensus of the policy goal, as well as the consistency of the evidence itself. In my House of Lords reform example, neither of these were present. He also suggests that windows of opportunity make major change open up only rarely and briefly when <coughs> policymakers' values happen to coincide with the implications of research. This was clear in my example on Commons reform. Here, I was delighted the right committee followed my evidence-based case to propose a backbench business committee. But if we were being truly evidence-based, the committee wouldn't have been looking at this subject at all, as the window opened up thanks to MPs' expenses, which was really unconnected. So policymakers will sometimes take up your evidence when it suits them. 
At other times, they're willfully blind to it. We saw some examples of this earlier as well. I don't think William Hague really thinks the House of Commons is such a hopeless institution, or he wouldn't have spent his career there. But it suits opposition politicians to argue that Parliament's sidelined, and this gets parroted by the media. Like politicians, campaign groups also conveniently overlook evidence when it doesn't suit them. I personally have frustrations with how democracy, democracy campaign groups ignore the clear historical evidence of the difficulties of Lord's reform, continually going for the big unattainable prize rather than smaller changes that might usefully be achieved. I've also had run-ins with the media. On one particularly frustrating occasion, a senior journalist asked me to pull out evidence from my Lord's database of the conservative voting habits of the bishops. I took the time to do this, reporting, reporting the evidence to show them, if anything, to be a progressive force. The journalist politely thanked me, then completely ignored what I'd said and wrote the story anyway. <laughs> so the relationship between research evidence, political practitioners, and the real world is very complex. At times, good academic research may be of benefit by simply gathering data that describes and explains the political world in a rigorous and objective manner. Sometimes, as indicated earlier, we may surprise those working in that world who have their own prejudices and don't see the bigger picture. Sometimes, we can actually find ourselves locked in a battle with policymakers to explain the political world to a wider public. As we've seen, politicians sometimes deliberately weave political myths and at other times inadvertently sustain them. So it's no exaggeration to say that sometimes the true reality check comes from academic research. This means impact and relevance go wider than simply influencing policy. The traditional educational role of academics is important too. As Black says, one of the most useful roles for research is to make people review their beliefs and legitimize unorthodox views. But attitudes don't shift overnight. Through my years at UCL, I've come increasingly to appreciate how we shift views incrementally through research feeding in, into good quality educational texts and informing students who will populate the future policy world. That's one reason why I'm pleased to be, along with Phil Cowley, who you'll hear from in a moment, on the editorial team for the new edition of the well-regarded volume, Developments in British Politics. Looking ahead, to repeat a, frame for, a refrain from <coughs> earlier, I think there are reasons to be cheerful. Despite concerns of a rift between the academic and political worlds, there are some countervailing pressures. A key one is obviously incorporation of impact in the last REF exercise. I'm pleased to say the Constitution Unit provided three of our department's four impact case studies, with the fourth coming from colleagues Jennifer Hudson and David Hudson on public attitudes to development aid. It's good to see the kind of outreach we've always done valued. But I do hope impact will play a bigger role in the next REF exercise in 2020. It is frankly pretty pathetic that a department of 30 academics being assessed over six years, that's 180 person years, is required to put in only four examples of research impact. That's no criticism of my department whatsoever. We have plenty of impactful <coughs> research going on and struggled to choose just four cases. The radical approach would say that within a six-year period, maybe all academics should have some kind of impact, broadly defined. We are, after all, all expected to meet the publication criteria. 
these continue to count for much, much more, which has a major knock-on effect for things like hiring decisions. This isn't helped by the fact that for some reason, you could take your publications with you from one institution to another in the last ref, but you couldn't take your impact, which seems very wrong. But in terms of the, the emphasis on publication, the problem perhaps partly lies elsewhere, with the journals themselves. Given the problems of scholasticism outlined earlier, should we not want the journals to base their publication decisions partly on the real-world usefulness of papers submitted? I recently attended a fascinating inaugural lecture by Jonathan Grant, the new director of the Policy Institute at King's. He'd conducted analysis of impact in medical research, finding that while 70% of funding was spent on basic research, fewer than 1% of papers in basic research journals had fed through in any way to clinical practice 20 years later. This seemed quite shocking, but it made me think, if we could construct a similar measure in political science, how would we do? I spend a lot of time on crossover activities between academia and policymakers, and not just through the Constitution Unit. I'm pleased to be on part of the editorial team on the Political Quarterly, which I'm, told is, which I'm reliably told is the only academic journal subscribed to by number 10. I've been closely involved in the study of Parliament Group, which brings together parliamentary staff and interested academics, and was joint founded by Bernard Crick, himself a former editor of PQ. The creation of more such forums um, <clears throat> bringing policymakers and academics together to discuss research would be a welcome byproduct of an increased focus on ref impact. Also useful would be more placements for academic staff and PhD students in the policy world. As you've seen, some of my own research, best research ideas came from the periods I spent there. Likewise, opportunities for policymakers to have spells in academia, the like of which the Constitution Unit has often hosted, can improve cross-fertilisation. But this sunny climate seems a good one for the future of the Constitution Unit and the wider Department of Political Science. This year, the department, which until now has focused largely on postgraduate studies, starts its first undergraduate programme, for which I'll be offering a new module in parliamentary studies, one of 20 in the country delivered jointly with the parliamentary authorities. I'll also, as Robert just announced, be taking over as the director of the Constitution Unit in the autumn. After his 20 years of exemplary leadership, which we'll be celebrating in various ways in the coming months, this is somewhat daunting. I'll no doubt fail to match his record in many respects, but I also hope the unit can develop in some new directions as a hub for scholars, including younger scholars, who want to influence the policy world. Finally, in that vein, I'm particularly delighted to make another announcement, that from September, Dr. Alan Rennick, currently of the University of Reading, will be taking over from me as the unit's deputy director. Alan has an excellent record of academic work on electoral systems and electoral reform, and a growing interest in processes of constitution making. He's also highly skilled at impact and dissemination. So I'm very excited about what we'll be able to do together. I hope when we go for drinks in a few minutes, you'll join me in warmly welcoming Alan to UCL. So that's it, I'm done. I'd like to thank you again for coming, and with only slight trepidation, hand over to Phil Cowley to give a brief reply. I, sh I should just add that the last short speech I heard Phil give was at his own wedding just 10 days ago. So I'm really delighted he's here with us tonight. <laughs>